You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. Today is part five in our summer series called VBS for Heretics. And for those of you unfamiliar with what VBS means, it's vacation Bible school. It's an old church term. Many of us who grew up in the church went to VBS as kids. Uh, and so throughout this series, we've been looking at what I think, in my opinion, this is my opinion, uh, the most important stories in the scriptures, what we might call mythos, but stories, essentially. Um, and so we've been looking at these stories in ways the church never told us about, <laughs> Uh, because the truth about these stories often runs afoul, we may say, of church tradition, so-called orthodoxy, thus the title of the series, VBS for Heretics. Um, today we're looking at the book of Revelation. It's a bit daunting of a task, not a single story, but an entire book this Sunday. The book of Revelation, and it is Revelation, singular, not plural. It's often, we hear people say Revelations, it's Revelation. It's a Bible nerd piece of trivia there for you. <laughs> the book of Revelation is perhaps the most misunderstood book in the Bible, but it holds a very powerful message that in some ways, in some ways, I think is still relevant. Um, when I was growing up, I grew up as a Pentecostal. You know what that means. Very fundamentalist evangelical, believing in spiritual gifts and the end times and all of these things. When I was growing up, I would watch this TV show with my father every Sunday night on the Christian Broadcasting Network, CBN. The, the show was Jack Van Impey Presents. Anybody ever watch Jack Van Impey? I would imagine you did. Oh, Abe, nice. You're dating yourself just like me. It's a He's dead now, um, Mr. Van Impey. But he was this televangelist who broadcasted from his, the studio in Canada. It was him and his wife, Rexella. And every week, it was just him interpreting current events in the news through the lens of biblical prophecy in order to argue that we are living in the last days. The second coming is imminent. The rapture is imminent. Time to get right with the Lord. It was a very... You know, the whole at, at the end of every episode, he would lead the audience or the TV audience in you know the prayer of salvation. But um, it was amazing how he could take a scripture, particularly out of the book of Revelation, but also the book of Daniel he liked as well, because it has apocalyptic literature, and we'll get into what that is in a minute here. But the book of Daniel is in some ways a lot like the book of Revelation. It was amazing how he could take a scripture and twist it to argue that it was talking about you know, current events you know, happening in Israel, you know, between Israel and its neighbors like Palestine or Lebanon. Or he would, he would take a scripture and show how this is describing U.S. foreign policy today yeah. or, or European, the European Union, you know, the revived Roman Empire, he would call it. right? Um, or he would take a current event like a hurricane, like the one we just had, uh, or an earthquake, and he would find a scripture to essentially say, this was prophesied about in the book of Daniel 2,500 years ago. Yeah. Um, 
anyway, my dad and I loved the show. <laughs> it was right up our alley. We loved it and believed everything he said because we were good fundamentalists who believed the rapture was imminent, the second coming was upon us, the end of history. We were living at the end of history, we believed. And this was not just Van Impey's point of view. This was the point of view of numerous televangelists that we paid attention to, Benny Hinn, the late Pat Robertson, um, countless other hucksters and charlatans on the Christian Broadcasting Network. The popular book series, Tim LaHaye, Tim LaHaye's popular book series, Left Behind. Anybody ever read the Left Behind book series? Jason, Jason is admitting, Desiree, Rodney, I see that hand. Um, yeah, absolutely, right? All of that. And I, and I share this today as a good example of the way that the book of Revelation has often been misread, misused. So what is the proper understanding of it? Well, to get there, we must begin by understanding that it was written by a man named John, who we don't really know. This is not John the Baptist or John the disciple of Jesus. This is a different John. And this John wrote this book, which was really a letter. Uh, he wrote it, we're told, while in exile on the island of Patmos, which is this desolate isle sitting in the Mediterranean Sea. And he was there hiding from the Romans, we're told, who wanted him dead for teaching other Christians to resist the empire, refuse to worship the emperor, don't engage in what was then the Roman imperial cult. It was a, a cult in the empire, the, the enforced worship of the emperor as, as a deity, as God. And so he, was, he wrote this letter, what we call the Book of Revelation, from that island to seven churches. It was written specifically to seven churches in what was then Asia Minor, what is today modern-day Turkey, on the west coast of modern-day Turkey. This was Ephesus, uh, I'm not going to name them all, Philadelphia, um, I forget them all. Smyrna, that's another one. There's seven cities there. There were seven, seven churches and seven cities there that he wrote these to. And again, he wrote to encourage them to resist the empire, to resist the Roman imperial cult, to not worship the emperor, to keep their faith, to not buckle under the immense pressure of persecution that they were suffering. There were, some of them were being arrested, thrown into prison. This was during the reign, uh, we believe, of Emperor Nero and Domitian. Many of them we know from history. Uh, many Christians lost their lives in the arena. They would be thrown into the arena with um, animal hides, covered in animal hides, and then lions and other beasts would be released upon them, dogs that ripped to shreds in the arena. Um, then many of them were actually crucified as well. So this is what they were facing. And John writes this letter to them to encourage them to keep the faith, to not buckle under the pressure, to not give in to the Roman imperial cult. And the message he includes in this book isn't just you know, resist, but this message that Rome's days are numbered, that God is going to judge Rome and destroy it. 
And you saints that keep the faith and who are martyred or who endure unto the end and do not give in to the cult, the Roman imperial cult, you will reign in the world to come with our Lord when he returns and lays to waste all systems of oppression and injustice in the world, but specifically Rome. This, this book is primarily about Rome and a condemnation and judgment against Rome and an encouragement to the Christians in these seven churches that they're on the winning side. Rome's not, Rome's not going to win. God's going to win. And Caesar, Nero, Domitian, Vespasian, they are not king of kings and lord of lords. But Jesus Christ is. That's the message. This letter was written in a literary genre called apocalyptic literature. We don't have this genre really in our um, repertoire today. We're all familiar with literary genres like science fiction, mystery, romance novel. We're familiar with these different kinds of genres, but back then there was such a thing as apocalyptic literature. That word apocalypse is Greek and simply means to unveil or uncover or reveal something. The word apocalypse doesn't mean like uh, the end of the world. It just simply means to reveal, to uncover. And that's the name of the book. It's the Apocalypse of St. John. But in English, it's translated the Book of Revelation or John's Revelation. Apocalyptic literature in the ancient world was full of bizarre, cataclysmic, and cosmological imagery. It was typified uh, by this. It's, it's about kind of the end of the world as we know it, we find apocalyptic literature in other books of the Bible other than Revelation. I mentioned earlier that the book of Daniel includes it. We find it in books or prophets in the Old Testament like Joel, Zechariah, Isaiah. We also find it in the Gospels. We find apocalyptic literature in the Gospels where we find Jesus describing, predicting the fall of Jerusalem and the coming of the Son of Man and the Day of Judgment, and a lot of that language is perhaps metaphorical, but nevertheless, it's in there. And Jesus predicts the fall of Jerusalem. At least the gospel writers record him doing so. Other apocalyptic literature um, that we find is, it, it's all pretty, pretty commonly the same. In other words, it's very illustrative and uses cosmological imagery, and the book of Revelation is no exception. There we find stories of, of dragons and strange beasts coming out of the sea and uh, warring with angels in the heavens and, and magical scrolls being opened and magical boar, <laughs> boars, bowls being, well, maybe boars as well. Uh, poured out and and uh, bringing cataclysm upon the earth, disease and earthquakes and all of these horrific things and angels and, and demons are at war and the cosmos and all this imagery is, of course, symbolism. It's not literal, it's symbolic. It's a metaphor for things happening in the very real world, the very real physical world of first century and second century um, essentially the Mediterranean world of the first and second century, the Roman world. Again, the, the book, the letter has to do with Rome and the Roman imperial cult and the symbolism is about all of that. And I'll briefly just give you some examples here. 
In chapter 17, the text says that the beast has seven heads, which are seven mountains. Rome was known in, in antiquity as, as the city of seven hills or seven mountains. In chapter 13, the beast was given a mouth speaking in blasphemies against God. Emperor Nero, we're told, referred to himself and demanded to be called Almighty God and Savior. In chapter 13, the beast is given power to make war against the saints. Nero, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, was the first emperor to really persecute Christians. It wasn't the last, but he was arguably the first. He had many of them put to death in the arena, as I mentioned, and crucified countless of them. Revolution, Revelation 13 also talks about how the beast would continue his reign of terror against the saints for 42 months, which is strangely precise. Turns out that Nero, uh, his, his reign of terror against the church lasted about three and a half years until his death, 42 months. Likewise, we're told in chapter 13 that the number of the beast, what's, you know what the number of the beast is. What's the number of the beast, everybody? Six, 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 right? Um, the name Nero Caesar, written in Hebrew, has a, a numerical value of 666. We could look at other examples, but you get the point. The, the book is about Rome. It's not about today. It's not about, you know, 10 years from now. It's about Rome. It's about the first and second century, specifically about the Roman persecution of the church. It's about Nero, but also possibly about Emperor Domitian who followed him. Which means the, the book is deeply political. This is actually a very political book of the Bible. And by that I mean it's, it's about the critique and condemnation of Rome's unjust power, and particularly that of the emperor. In this regard, as I said, it's also an encouragement to the church to resist the empire in its idolatrous ways and thereby courageously endure persecution as a result believing that in the end they will live on in the world to come, in a new Eden-like world. You know, I, to be frank, this, this book is not something that I really subscribe ideologically to at all anymore. I do not believe in a literal second coming. Uh, I don't believe that there's, there ever was an idyllic time on earth, a, a pre-lapsarian, pre-fallen world like what we find described in fundamentalist traditions as the Garden of Eden. I don't think we are going to return to that perfect world in, in the sweet by and by. There's parts about this book that I find deeply problematic and I reject, but nevertheless, there's also parts about it that I find to be um, beautiful actually in some ways. You know, part of what we find specifically in uh, Revelation chapter 5 is this idea that we are ruled not by, in other words, our God is not like Caesar. God's power is not like the power of the Roman Empire, but God's power is that, and the image provided to us is that of a slaughtered lamb. That God's power is the so-called weak power of self-sacrifice and love and compassion and things like this. That's part of the story as well, that the God that we serve, that Christianity, our, our religion, if you will, is not like the powers of this world, which is the power of violence and force and coercion, the power of Nero, the power of the empire. No, 
God's power doesn't work like that, according to chapter five. Instead, it works like love and self-sacrifice and compassion and what we find exemplified in the crucified Christ, which stands as antithetical to the powers of this world. That's, that's part of the story that we find in Revelation. And that's something I can affirm um, and like about it. And we can talk more about different understandings of the last, <laughs> of, of the end times and millennialism in a few minutes, if you'd like. We can talk more about the those parts of the book of Revelation and things like Jack Venenby and <laughs> things like that, if you want. But I want to pivot now and just talk for a minute about how the book of Revelation is perhaps the best example we have in the Bible of how myth and esoterica, and that's a fancy $10 word that basically means hidden things, uh, writings about mysticism and hidden things, esoterica means like secret hidden knowledge. The, the book of Revelation is perhaps the best example we have in the Bible of how myth and esoterica was used in the ancient world to speak figuratively of literal things. Rome was a literal thing. Rome was very real. It was a literal threat. It was a literal oppressive and murderous force in the world that destroyed countless people's lives. But the text speaks of it figuratively. Why? Why not just come out and write what you mean? <laughs> Well, there's a few different reasons for why we find the book of Revelation and the Gospels, for that matter, steeped in legend, mythology, esoterica, metaphor, what's called mimesis, the mimicking of other stories. Lots of reasons why, potentially, but I'm convinced it's at least in part because speaking in myth, metaphor, and other forms of esoteric speech was seen back then as a way of revealing deeper truths about the nature of reality, and possibly also as a way of bringing the reader or hearer into what we might say is an altered state of consciousness or a new level of consciousness, a kind of spiritual level, to give us eyes to see, ears to hear in the world, to look past simply the way things appear to be and see a kind of deeper structure. In other words, I think the goal of these texts, like Revelation, like the Gospels and others in the scriptures that are steeped in mythos, I think the goal was not simply to impart secret knowledge, but to impart an altered state of consciousness or an elevated, an elevated state of consciousness or a spiritual experience and I don't think this is just, again, the case with the book of Revelation, but I think it's the case with the Gospels. The Gospels are saturated with parables, myths, metaphors that play on the Exodus trope, like we talked about last week, but also the Greco-Roman demigod trope. And the Gospels also use apocalyptic literature, as I mentioned a few minutes ago. Again, the purpose behind all this, I think, was not just to impart knowledge about Jesus, but to impart a new kind of consciousness to the reader and to the hearer, to invoke, impart 
a new way of seeing the world, a spiritual way of looking at things, if you will. I'm reminded of something Jeff Kripal, a philosophy of religion professor that teaches at Rice University, once said, it's often the case that people have spiritual and mystical experiences simply by reading about spiritual and mystical experiences. Texts do something to us. Stories do something to us. They open up new vistas of reality. They expand our imagination. They expand our consciousness in ways that we're not even fully conscious of, I believe. I don't think our sacred texts like the Bible are magical per se, but I think they have the ability like, if you will, I'm going to use the analogy of a psychedelic or a, or a hallucinogen. They have the ability to elevate and alter our consciousness or, again, open up new vistas of reality. And what I love about this idea is not just that it sets us free from the ridiculous way fundamentalists read the text, like, like a newspaper or a science textbook. But such an understanding of the text, the one that I'm proposing today, it, it reinscribes and even elevates the text, the spiritual power of the text. And I think this is so important for us here at, at a place like Central. There's something so reconstructive about this to me. The goal in studying the Bible the way we do here is not just to arrive at a better intellectual understanding of the Bible and Christianity. That's not what it's really all about. The goal is not just to think better thoughts. But the goal, at least for me, is to have an experience. To elevate our consciousness. To foster, garner a sense of connection to something beyond us, what we might call the divine the transcendent, the sacred. And everything we do here, actually, in my opinion, is intended, at least in part, to do that. Like our, like our studies, my talks, our discussions, our prayers, Max's and Emily's music and Dorian's music, I don't want to forget you as well. <laughs> our liturgy. And of course, the receiving of the Lord's Supper, which we partake in here weekly, it's all, it's all a kind of spiritual practice. All of these things are spiritual practices that can give us, if we let them, if we are open to it, a sense of connection to something beyond ourselves or that which opens our minds to these other aspects of reality that I believe are quite real. It opens us up to a deeper understanding of ourselves and the world. I don't think our spiritual practices are magical per se, but I think they're mystical. And I, I realize that's a bit of a difference of, in semantics. I, I don't think they're magic because that word magic comes with too much baggage for me, but I think they're mystical. I like the word magic in some contexts, but I, mystic is more mysticism is more of what I'm going after here. These sacred writings, our, our, our sacred text, the Bible, and these sacred practices we engage in here, they're vehicles. I think they're like vehicles. And they're not necessarily better vehicles than the ones found in other religions or parts of life. 
but they're our vehicles. These are my vehicles. And I think we need vehicles. In this crazy postmodern context where we're taught to deconstruct all narratives, all institutions, you know, everything is under question today. In this crazy postmodern context, we are often left adrift in the world without anything to hold on to in any stories of meaning. We need stories of meaning. We need structures. We need practices. We need community. We need to gather around something. We need traditions. We weren't meant to go through the world without these things as human beings. But so th these are my traditions, these are our traditions. And they're beautiful. We need sacred practices that transport us to a place of heightened awareness and connection to each other, but also to what we describe as the sacred, the divine, the transcendent. Whatever, in whatever ways we imagine that, and all ways are welcome. Find a way that works for you. You know? That's what I think the book of Revelation is doing and other sacred texts that play on these myths and these legends and these stories and these tropes and then engage in this kind of esoterica. It's calling us into this deeper way of looking at the world and ourselves and to revel to revel in this, to find spiritual practices, I think. So that's that's where I wanted to take things today. And we're going to pivot now and engage in a spiritual practice as we do every week called the Lord's Supper, which is incredibly mystical. This idea of being one with Christ, consuming symbolically his body and blood. This is rich with mystical meaning. We, be, we internalize God. God dies in the world. His body is dismembered and scattered among us as bread and wine, and we consume it and remember him, reconstitute him in our bodies. God's body is my body. We become the presence and power of the divine in the world. That's, for me, the deeper mystical meaning of this asks all kinds of questions. What does it mean to be Christ in the world? What does it mean to be God's presence in the world? To incarnate in flesh the divine. For me, it means love and compassion and justice and unity and solidarity with all humanity, regardless of race and color and class and creed, etc. Sexuality, it doesn't matter. We are all one in God. We are all connected. That to me is the deeper mystical meaning of this holy sacrament. That's why we partake. It's a Christian tradition. Yeah, it's Christian. It's not Buddhist. It's not Jewish. It's not Hindu. It's ours. It necessarily mean it's better than anybody else's, but it's ours. We need, we need tradition. We need practices to connect, to remember, to build. Partake in this now, regardless of who you are, regardless of how you define yourselves this day. This table is open. Christ's table was open to all. This is his table. It is open to all. Be blessed now in this. And we serve each other here, for those of you who are new. I serve the first, first person in, inside of the 
room here, but then you serve each other as a further symbolic representation of what it means to be God to each other in the world. Be blessed now. Each episode of the Central Cast is followed by an interactive discussion. If you'd like to participate in recordings, or if you're interested in exploring progressive faith and theology for a postmodern context, check out centralavenuechurch.org. Here's this week's unedited discussion. Questions, comments, um, anything goes today about the book of Revelation, end times, the rapture. Um, anybody want to just vent about the way they were raised in constant fear of the second coming? I remember, oh, you do, Laura? Oh, uh, excellent. I just, real quick, funny story. Maybe it's not funny. Maybe it's more tragic than funny. You be the judge. Uh Youth group, circa 1993, high school youth group. I distinctly remember the girl I had a crush on just totally being upset about the fact that Jesus was going to come back before she could get married and have sex for the first time. And I was just like, yeah, she's right. That's kind of a bummer. But but I was just like, but going to heaven is supposed to be so much better. So it's kind of weird that you're freaked out about not being able to have a family and get married and have sex. Anyway. Bizarre things that happen in church youth, fundamentalist church youth group. All right, Laura, sorry. I Hopefully I'm not taking a, robbing your thunder here. Oh, no, no, no. Uh, I was just going to say that, um, you know, it almost was more like um, when you look at it the, in the perspective of historical facts and whatnot, and that there is no magic time, like everything was, you know, uh, it's today. It's like in real terms, it's no different than today with the propaganda the um, uh, you know gaslighting the, uh, the this theme of saving everybody, but you know it being you know a fight for the, in the wrong side of history, where uh, it is constantly being assaulted with this idea of marrying that image to the point where you're willing to hurt people to achieve it you know and so it's i think it's just the human condition i mean we're gonna you know have these you know changing of the pendulum one side extreme one side, and there's a sweet spot somewhere in there in the middle but you know it's like i think that what is most important about it for me is all the fear-mongering and all that stuff gets you really confused and you know like scared and it makes you stop thinking and I think what helps me more than anything is if I can find that moment of peace and calm like when you do meditation or whatever where you're mindful and you're thought of so what what if what if this is the end so what so what if Jesus never comes or this is not real so what what can I do today I don't need God or a story or anything to be kind, patient, generous, and loving. It's all at hand all the time. So, so what? Let me not be a shitty person and have fun. 
<laughs> you know what? That could be actually a, that's a great slogan. Don't be a shitty person and have fun. No, I like it. I'm not making fun of it. I, I genuinely like it. You should create t-shirts and make some money off of that. Um, yeah, no, I, you said something I just thought I want to just emphasize and agree with this idea that yes, the book of revelation is about what was happening in the first and second century with the Roman imperial cult and the oppression of, of the empire on this population of this new radical group of people that resisted worshiping Emperor. But you're right that it's also about the critique of unjust powers throughout history and the way that empire always rears its head. And the question is, in what ways maybe is that happening today? And are we called as Christians and how we're called as Christians to embody the ethos of the slaughtered lamb? of Revelation 5, right? This this, this, this God of self-sacrifice and love and compassion, the so-called weak, right? The slaughtered lamb is an image, not like a lion, and it's juxtaposed with a lion in Revelation 5. Our God is not a lion, but a slaughtered lamb, right? And what does it mean to live that out? That's a great point. Um, other thoughts today about Revelation end times, um, your own personal story processing through your your beliefs about the second coming. <laughs> um, yeah, Emily. Sure. Uh, I think the thing that was hammered into my head is that was the thing that they could scare you with to make you stay. I mean, the theme of the Bible is just control and manipulation to keep the people submissive. That's literally every single story in there. And they don't focus on the ones that talk about being kind and the oppressed and the meek and the blah, blah, blah. That's not the emphasis. Um, and so, you know, like we're going to a lesbian wedding up in Sacramento on the 23rd and my brother who's gay is officiating. And she came out of a really, like her brother was schizophrenic, murdered his mom and almost, and tried to murder his grandmother at the same time. That's just one of the stories from my neighborhood. It's a real situation, but um, Diana always says that she's surprised I came out as like adjusted as I did from what I came from. But anyway, she has no family. And so we, because we were, she sees us as family. And so that's what we are going to do. And except for my dad, like my dad's not really involved in that, my family that way. But he, my other brother went over and he told him we were going to this wedding and da da da. And he just went off on what is this world coming to when a gay guy's, um, you know, officiating a lesbian wedding. And I was like, you came to my wedding, to my wife, and you sat in the front as my father of the bride. And these are the thoughts that you have. It's just, and, and he's adultered on my mom. Uh, they got a divorce. He's now unmarried, uh, basically living with a woman who sh won't let him spend the night at his, at her house. I mean, the whole thing is just like, what the heck? And my brother straight was like, you're a fornicator. You're an adulterer. Like who gives you that? You don't even go to church, but you want to stand on these stupid six things that you, you know, the clobber passages. Oh, you got to stay on that. Cause guess what? People loving each other is the worst thing that's happening in this world right now. And guns. Yeah, it's frustrating. So you it's describe like, yeah, the it's, hypocrisy it's, well. Yeah, but it's like, but that's what Revelations means to me. It's the thing that they can hold over your head, like, well, he's coming, right? So it's like Santa on the naughty list. Don't be, you know, yeah. you're not getting any presents if you, yeah. you know. It's just weird and creepy, and I'm glad that we have this, and we don't have to yeah. believe crap like that. It's 
be normal people and not live under the stress and fear mongering of how we have to be like this to be accepted. Right. Yeah, well said. Yeah. Thanks. Hey, Aaron, it's Akila. Can you hear me? Other other thoughts, ventings, whatever you want to do. Yeah, and um, I grew up fundamentalist, Pentecostal. God, we have parallel stories. Um, and so this was the only interpretation I knew of Revelation was the, you know, the end times version of it, the the left behind version of it. Um, and it's only been recently that I've learned that that's a fairly modern interpretation of, of the Bible in general and that book in particular. And, um, even though it was presented as this is the way the church has always seen this. So I'm curious if you know, like, I don't know a whole lot about the development of the Bible and the canon and what was chosen to be in the Bible. Do you know any of the history on why Revelation was included and what it was understood to mean at that time? That's a really good question. And I don't know the answer. I don't know why I even come here. <laughs> so above my pay grade to know, no, it's not. I should know the answer to this. Um, but you know what's cool about this church is I'm not the only one here that went to seminary or grew up in the church and has read books. Lots of people here read books on this stuff. And I'm curious if anybody here or listening online uh, knows how the revelation got into the the canon. Oh, come on, people. We failed. We <laughs> Yeah, Max. So you, Max sounds like. Sounds like he has at least something to say here. I don't have the answer. I have, Give us I the have answer. answer. Well, I was just going to say, like, as much as any book, right, why did it get in the canon? Yeah. Like, there's not a decisive answer on any, any Bible book, right? It's because a bunch of men who were in power agreed to let it be in the Bible is the answer to that part. Um, and, I, I mean, it came into the canon – uh, I think, I mean, around the similar time, I mean, it depends on what we de define as canon, because there's collections of books and scriptures that were passed on and kept and regarded as holy and sacred. And then it's not till these formal like church councils that they decide, okay, these are officially are our scriptures and our and what's going to be in the Bible and everything else is not uh, anymore. <clears throat> so and that was just about power and who gets to decide what the story it is. But, uh, but in terms of the original intent similarly right when you're talking about a, a book that's this old uh there are many theories and it comes down to well which makes the most sense which do you put the most you know um uh whatever value into and the one i think makes the most sense that you touched on is it was written in coded language so this is john of patmos who's in exile he is an enemy of the state he is writing in coded language uh, to the other Christian churches, if they even called it at that time, probably did, um, about resisting the empire, right? So it was a letter of resistance. It was a coded, hey, we need to band together to stand up against the Roman empire because we are called to live in a completely different way from the Roman empire. 
uh, right? The seven heads, the seven uh, hills of Rome. Um, And we are the churches and we are being marked by the empire. And I don't, I don't know if you touched on this, forgive me if you did, but like the whole, yeah, the mark of the beast and entering the marketplace and like every single one of the illusions used these images can be directly tied to what it meant to be living as a citizen of the Roman empire under a tyrant emperor. Um, And this writer is writing to his fellow believers saying, we can't live like this. We are called to a different way of life and you should take hope and you should take courage because we, we believe in a different way of doing life. But if he had just written that, he might've gotten executed, right? He, if, and got caught, this was sedition. This was, you know, he was a traitor to the Roman empire. So he wrote it in this language that is this apocalyptic, et cetera, et cetera. Now, whether we think or believe, oh, what of this did he think was literal, right? Like, did he believe that Jesus would actually come back with a sword and who knows, right? No one can ever really say how much he put into it himself but i think there's the overwhelming evidence that it was a letter written to early christians to resist the roman empire yeah and and the criteria and to get it into the text as max was saying was was similar to all the other criteria the criteria for the other texts which the question the bishops had in the fourth century i believe it was in order to decide what made it into the canon and what didn't was what's the authenticity of what's written? Can we trace its authenticity back to a legitimate apostle? And does the message jive with what else that we ascribe as authoritative scripture? Does it mesh with the rest of what we ascribe as authoritative? And and of course, there's probably, there was a debate, but the general consensus was, yeah, it's it's authoritative and it needs to be in there. I, I think that's it. But Abe, did you want to say? Yeah, yeah. I just want to. I, I like, knew you would have it. I, I knew I, I could count on you here. I mean, it was, uh, you know, it was it was written in in the second probably in the second century, to flesh out the notion of a second coming of Jesus that Paul thought Jesus was going to return. Very likely, very soon. Almost yeah. every first century Christian thought that G, the return of Jesus was just around the corner, but they didn't have any. You know, they they never really fleshed out that notion of what that looked like, what that was going to be, you know, what was going to happen when Jesus returned. But by the second, you can kind of understand how the movement, as it progressed intellectually into the second century, uh, getting pretty distant from the first Christians, from the people that would have known Jesus, would have known the original apostles, you know, that they may have, they wanted to start fleshing out what that notion was, what, what, uh, what a return of Jesus would actually look like. And they wrote it in this apocalyptic literary tradition, um, you know, again, with that sort of coded Roman language, but it is also about a future coming of Jesus, a return of Jesus. You know, and I think, uh, I think it would be generally sort of accepted from a scholarship standpoint that that, that, was also an important notion in, in the book, you know, and and its inclusion in the canon. Uh, this is another thing I'm working from memory here. I believe it was the most controversial book in terms of the voting of the bishops. It, it barely got into the into the canon, uh, but it was you know c- clearly included to give uh, in the canonized scripture an ending to the story of Christianity. Christianity began in the Garden of Eden. It progressed through the ancient Israelites and the, and the sort of uh, prophetic tradition and into the uh, era and Jesus. And then it's going to end 
somewhere out there in the future when Jesus comes back, you know, and it's kind of vague. It can be interpreted in a bunch of different ways. So you can kind of understand why, you know, a compelling case could be made by fourth century bishops uh, to include it just so there is some kind of ending to what Christianity is. It does put a nice cap on the canon. Yeah. 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 Aesthetically. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And and to be clear, um, I think it's also interesting to point out that the, the interpretation of the second coming, uh, the church's theology, which is called eschatology for the technical term, uh, around the second coming changed dramatically around the early Middle Ages. As Abe was saying, from about from the inception of the church age in the first century to the about the third century, the belief was what's called premillennialism, this idea that that not just that the second coming was imminent, but that Christ was going to return and and judge the world before this messianic age, so premillennialism, before this messianic age where God reigns the world over the world and the world essentially made new like like a return to the Garden of Eden. That was that was the thinking. But then because three centuries went by, 300 years went by and it hadn't happened, the church decided, a lot of the church decided, it became orthodoxy, what's called post or amillennialism, ah, meaning kind of like, well, it's kind of like we're living, the thinking was we're living in the millennial reign of Christ now. We're living in the church age, especially after the Edict of Milan, when the church was made the de facto state religion of Rome, which is a complete 180 from a few centuries prior, when it was hunted down and attempted to be exterminated by Rome, became the, the de facto state religion of Rome with Constantine converting it became church doctrine that we're living in the millennial age now, the, that God is reigning over the world through the, through the papacy, you know, the Pope, uh, and over the, uh, the Holy Roman Empire. Gosh, there's a lot of world history here. But, but that was the thing. And then, and just kind of tracing it to the modern age, premillennialism has had a comeback because in the wake of World War I, World War II, and the horrific events of the 20th century it made people think well we can't be living in the millennial reign of christ now because look at the world it's going to hell in a handbasket and we're faced with nuclear annihilation every day so premillennialism's come back into style the belief that you know christ is returning and will fix all this anyway all that to say the church has always had very very diverse uh and contested understanding of that book and the second coming and everything related to eschatology, but it's interesting. Um, all right, we've got maybe one time for one more comment. Um, uh, Emily, yep, did you have something? Thanks, Abe. I'm not gonna vent, and this is not gonna take forever. That's I just cool. wanna say, how many people in here have smoked weed? Have what? Smoked weed, smoked, eaten, whatever. Been under the influence of weed, okay. Have you ever been so high that you think you've come up with the greatest idea on the face of the planet, right? And then you get up the next day and you're like, what the heck was that? I feel like revelations, are we not, do we not all consider everyone in the Bible, all the writers, everybody that was there to be mentally stable? Like, what if there was like some people who just were unwell? And at the time, yeah, there's plants, there's hallucinogens, there's all kinds of things people could have been doing that have- There's always been a fine line. Yeah, I, look at you're not wrong. Right That's why I was like, oh my gosh. There's always been a fine line between madness and genius. Let's just we can end it like right there. <laughs> you know, there's always been a fine line. 
and uh, the the theological uh, things have always been helped by pharmacological things (laughs) like that. Um, But yeah, interesting. All right. Well, all right. And Joel, we'll end with you today. Oh, we do. We, We got another minute. Sure. Sure. There you go. Hi, I'm Joel. Uh, I'm new. This is like my second time, so hello. Um, I haven't talked in a microphone in a church in many, many, many wow. years. Yeah. So it's a little weird. Uh, it's great. Uh, yeah, so we were talking about just how we kind of are experienced with the book of Revelation, like the second coming, and, uh, you know, that it's been lorded over people in a lot of ways and things. Um, for me, it was always a way of... Uh, people I think avoiding responsibility for our earth and what's happening here. It was always Jesus coming back or, you know, things are going to change. This is all going away. Um, And, and actually in the last like week or two, I was talking to a family member who kind of made this comment about like, well, unless Jesus comes back, we're just going to run through all of our resources. It's inevitable. Like we're going to have collapse of society. Uh, And I, I reject that. I think, I don't think I accept that. Uh, I think it's kind of the opposite, right? Like we should be taking responsibility for what's happening. We should be trying to find solutions for things. We should be trying to make the world a better place because it's what we have. And for me, that's kind of what revelation always was growing up was like, well, it doesn't matter anyway, you know, we're, this is where it is. So anyway, I don't know if anybody else had similar yeah, experiences. Agreed. But... Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. That's a great place to end. Thank you for being here. Um, we do always finish, come back together as a community and say our joint benediction together. Great way to end. Let's say this together now. As we go from this place, we commit ourselves to the path of love, honesty, and humility. We dedicate ourselves as Christ did to the cause of justice and the courageous embrace of this life, this world, and each other. Thanks for being here. Go in peace.